the Lord in prayer. It's his word. We pray that he might work through it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you are a God who not only creates, but who desired to make himself known. That you have revealed yourself to your creation. And the the main way we can get to know you is through your word. We may not have lived 2,000 years ago to see Jesus with our own eyes, but we see him through other people's eyes who saw him, who heard him, and by the work of your Holy Spirit wrote down the things that we needed to know that we might be complete with everything for life and godliness. Help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning that we might undoubtedly say that he is worthy of our all transform every aspect of our life through your word this morning we ask in jesus name amen now some of you have commented that there have been hardly any st kilda references this year for those who haven't been here for very long i moved up from victoria i quite like my afl and st kilda's my afl team but there's probably one thing that's keeping you awake at night you're thinking who's sarah's team Who is Sarah's team? Sarah's team is Essendon. Sarah, I have a question for you. Yes. (laughs) Either Sarah's welcome to answer, but one of them can answer as being my wife. Who is that guy second from the left, Sarah? No idea. I've only ever watched one football game in my life. There you go. That is Dyson Heppel. He's the captain of your football team. Now, who would say that Sarah is a wholehearted Essendon fan based on what you know of her and also based on what you've just heard from her just then? Any takers? Nobody would. And clearly, Sarah is included in the nobody who would say that she is a wholehearted Essendon supporter. Some might say that actually knowing who the players are is reasonably important, maybe even the captain. Today we're having a look at what Jesus says is of foremost importance for those who would be his followers. In summary, it's, he's calling for an all-encompassing love of God and of the people whom he made in his image. What Jesus says in response to that question is extremely familiar to all Christians. Most Christians could probably quote it without even needing to look into the Bible. It's familiar to us, but as we look at it today, we also look into the mirror and ask the question, does this describe me? As we work our way through, we're going to see the question, what is most important? Then what seems initially a little out of place, the question of whose son is this one that Psalm 110 speaks of? And then Jesus takes from his surroundings two examples. One of what isn't a wholehearted love of God, in verses 38 to 40, one of what is a wholehearted love of God in 41 to 44. And as we conclude and wrap it up, we're going to pray and ask that God would do a transforming work in our life. 
So firstly, the question of what is most important? Now over the last little bit here in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been in the vicinity of of the temple and he's been asked and challenged with a series of questions. He's been asked by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the Herodians. And now, for the first time, it is an individual who puts a question to Jesus and an individual scribe. Now, if you hadn't read through it beforehand, you'd think, oh, this isn't going to end well. Because every occasion that the scribes have interacted with Jesus so far in the Gospel of Mark, and incidentally, after this account as well, have been opposed to Jesus in a negative response. Now, the scribes, they were the experts in law, they were the theologians of the day. To be even in that position, they had memorised the Old Testament scriptures. Not just a little bit, just the Old Testament scriptures. They had memorised the oral traditions on top of all of that. They knew what the Bible said. And so far, every interaction has been negative until this one. As the scribe approached Jesus, it appears that he's quite impressed with the way Jesus has answered the previous questions that he's been given. And this scribe does what was common practice in those days, He asks a teacher, tell me, summarise it for me. What is the central heart of God? What is it all about? What are the scriptures all about? Now in most translations, or the ESV that we had read beforehand, the question that is written there, it says, which commandment is the greatest of all? And it kind of sounds like he's saying, of the 600 and whatever that they would say that there were, Which one of those is the most important? But literally, the Greek language that it was written in doesn't ask about which specific one commandment. It literally just says, what type of command is foremost? What sort of thing is the most important thing in the word of God? In other words, he's saying, summarise for me the central heart of God as revealed in the Scriptures. As Jesus responds to that question, there's a bit more detail here in, in, in Mark's account than Matthew. Jesus answered, the most important is, or literally the foremost thing is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love your Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So in response to this question, Jesus quotes what the Jews would call the Shema, apart from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where he says, Hear, O Lord, the the Lord your God is one, and love with all your heart, etc. Although he does add mind, mind's not originally in the Deuteronomy reading. But he pairs it alongside with loving your neighbour, taken from Leviticus 19.18. Now we, we just automatically put those two things together. 
Love God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. Love our neighbour as ourself. But up until then, nobody had paired those two things together. And the Jewish understanding of loving your neighbour, they interpret as meaning love your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. There's very few Christians who couldn't quote that response. Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your mind, all of your soul, with all of your strength. But there are two particular nuances that I want to highlight there. They are two words that are repeated. Maybe I should put it back on. The first and the most obvious of those is that all. Jesus does not say, I want you to love me mostly with your stuff. He says, with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Every single bit. It's an all-in love of God. Not just a primary love of God, it's an all-in love of God from every single part of me. The other word which is repeated, which on the surface might seem a little insignificant, is with. Because when you see with, it kind of sounds like what you do to love God, what instrument you use. But the word that's translated with, and I looked across all the English translations, its primary meaning is not with. Its primary meaning of that word is from or out of. Jesus isn't telling you to muster up with all of your energy to use these things to love him. He's saying from out of all of your heart, from out of all of your soul, from out of all of your mind, from out of all of your strength to love him in all of your entirety. He's not calling us to strain our faculties to love him. He's calling us to have transformed faculties that out of the air abundance will naturally respond wholeheartedly in love for him. From out of all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love your neighbour as you would love yourself. Now remember, Jesus had to explain that in the parable of the Good Samaritan and say, who's the good neighbour? They looked upon Samaritans being despised because they, they were kind of Jews, but they kind of mixed with some of the other Gentiles and so they didn't want anything to do with them. And he says, even them comes under the definition of who is your neighbour. It's, it's whoever is around you, including your enemies. He says, we're to love those in the same way that we would want others to love us. And in Matthew's account, he says, on these two commands hang all of the entirety of all the law and the prophets. That you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Or here in Mark's account says, there is no command that's greater than these. Now the scribe, as we said, they know the Bible. They know it very well. They've memorised it. He affirms Jesus' teaching. Essentially kind of repeats what Jesus says from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. 
Then he morphs together various other verses throughout the Old Testament in his response. But unlike every other scribe we've seen so far in Mark, this scribe understands what Jesus says. He gets it. He supports it. He approves of what Jesus has just said. All of this right in the middle of the temple, the centre of all religious activity. He says, yeah, I know. You don't care about religious activity, about offerings and things like that. You care more that people love you. They love their neighbour. Not just the externals or the appearance of a loving. And he says that in the very heart of where religious activity takes place. Jesus, seeing this man affirm these truths and understand the scripture, understand what Jesus says, says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. He's kind of rebuked and questioned every scribe he's come upon, but this one, who's willing to listen and hear what Jesus has to say, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. Now, in one sense, of course he's not. He's, he's before the king of the kingdom that he's speaking with. Now he says, you, you apply that, you figure out what that means and you take it to its logical end that the, the Lord Jesus has come and place your trust in him. You, you're there. The king is before you. But having answered all of these questions, including the ones from the previous week that Alon looked at as well, the questions stop. Everyone's satisfied with the way in which Jesus has answered all the questions. No one's got anything else to answer. But now Jesus is about to challenge the whole crowd regarding his identity. As the much-anticipated son of David, who is he? Whose son is this one? Jesus raises a question about the most quoted part of the Old Testament that gets used in the New Testament. Hence why we used it at the beginning from Psalm 110, Verse 1, a psalm written by David himself, where David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the Hebrews, the first Lord is Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord God says to my Lord, Adonai, a master, a ruler, a king, sit at my right hand. When we hear that verse, we automatically think of Jesus because that's how Jesus interpreted this psalm. That's how the New Testament authors interpret this psalm and rightfully so. But it did also have an original application where it was used in the coronation of a king where it was saying that the Lord Yahweh says to the king, sit at my right hand as the one who is he, the God's vice regent it's like he's effectively at the right hand of God, serving and ruling over his people. But after the destruction of the kingdom in 586 BC, people began to realise that kingdom could not do what it was called to do. They began to apply it to the idea of the Messiah, of the coming Christ. And even before Jesus had come, the Jews had began to connect those two things together that the son of David is also the Christ, the Messiah, the expected one. So we see there in verse 35, we see the scribes were teaching that the Christ is the son of David. 
And that's the reason why Jewish leaders throughout the gospel accounts are uncomfortable when people or Jesus makes reference to himself with regards to David because it's a claim to be the Christ. Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the son of David, asked the question. Verse 37. Having quoted Psalm 110, and just in case they were unsure whether or not it was the word of God, he says, no, that the spirit said through him. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He says, how does that make sense? If David is talking about one of his descendants, how can he call him great? How can he call him Lord? Culturally, you just wouldn't do that. The younger would respect and look up to the older. Jesus isn't trying to deny any connection with David. The question is more along the lines of, if David calls him Lord, he must be something more substantial than just the son of David. The Christ is more than David's son. He is God's son. And as God's son, the previous thing that they'd all agreed upon, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength, starts to change the way in which they think about Jesus and respond to Jesus. It says the crowd heard him gladly. That doesn't mean they understood it. We see throughout Mark a lot of times where they're just amazed, they're, they're impressed with what Jesus says and does. So far he said that what's the most foremost thing? To love God from all, all of every faculty of who you are. To love your neighbour as yourself. He's kind of hinted from Psalm 110 that the Messiah is the Son of God. And now he seeks to provide two examples of a, firstly, a false view of what wholehearted love of God is, and then a true one. Firstly, what is not wholeheartedness? After having spoken of one particular scribe as being not far from the kingdom, Jesus now describes many of the scribes who might have all the appearances of being near to the kingdom, but who were indeed far from. In his teaching, he says, beware of the scribes. In particular, the ones who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honours at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, the scribes, they were the, like the PhDs of theology of the time. They were highly respected. Yet Jesus says of these ones, beware of them. When Jesus had previously spoken about having a love of God from all of your faculties and an all-in way, the people hearing were probably thinking, yeah, like godly people, like the scribes. And Jesus says, no. Religious behaviour does not equate or equal wholehearted love of God. You could be thoroughly religiously committed to doing all sorts of things, 
and have a heart that is very far from God. Be like Sarah wearing her Essendon jersey, watching every single game, having a membership. None of those things prove that you love Essendon. And I guarantee if she did all those things, she wouldn't. These scribes that Jesus describes have a wholehearted love for themselves and for the respect of others. Like culturally, when they walked down the street in their robes, people would recognise there's a scribe. They would stop what they were doing. They would stand up as they walked past. And the scribes thought, how good am I? They'd get all the best seats. But then in private, as we see there in verse 40, they would take advantage of the vulnerable, of the widows, and then try to cover it up with a religious facade with some nice, long, lengthy prayers. They are not only far from the kingdom, despite doing all sorts of religious things, but Jesus says they will receive a greater condemnation. Why? They knew. God had given them all the revelation. They'd they'd memorized it, everything they needed to know to draw near to God in love. Yet they turned something which should have drawn them near to God in love in the hope that they would draw people to turn them to themselves in love and honour. And we can make the same mistake. We can make the same mistake of thinking that if I do enough religious things, that, that proves I love God. Or sometimes we might think, if I do enough religious things, I want to do this because people are going to think of me highly. Doing religious activity doesn't manufacture a love for God. But a love for God will transform all of your faculties that will naturally overflow to love and serve him wholeheartedly. If the scribes are the example not to follow, it's an unusual one who's put forward as the one to follow as an example of wholeheartedness. A widow, certainly not high up in the status of society, of of first century society. Now there's one thing I like about today's tech age is the changes in the way in which church offerings take place I know a lot of you might be attached to the old ways things were done. I mean, I like the idea that I don't need to remember. You turn up and go, oops, I forgot to put money in my wallet. I'll have to remember to do it next week. But who remembers the good old days when you had the, this, the wooden thing with a, a red sort of felt corduroy sort of bag in it and you put your thing in there? Or it could be the, a wooden plate and you, you pass that around and that's kind of a bit more weird because everyone can see what you've done. And apparently, statistically, they say that you get more money if you do the open plate because everyone realises that everyone can see what you put in there. And then you can sometimes hear the little clinker-clanker of the, the, the coins that have gone in there. Now, if you do remember those days, I want you to admit it. You don't have to admit it out loud. You had a little bit of a glance around, didn't you? You had the sneaky corner of your eye. You kind of had a look at what was going on, what people put in, in around you. You know, you heard the little clinky clanky of the coins, and you're like, in your mind, didn't say to that. You're like, cheapskate. Then you saw a person who had a big wad of notes, and they and they put them in there, and you thought, yeah, that 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 person, there's a serious Christian there. And you know what? Both of those conclusions could be entirely wrong. 
as we'll see in the example that we have right here. As Jesus sat in the temple, he could see people putting money in the temple treasury. Now, the vessels they used, they were actually like ram's horns. They were like a, a cone-like shape thing, which made it hard to get your hand in to, to nick it out as well. But there were different ones designed for different purposes, whether they were a free will offering or for, they were for temple taxes, all sorts of things. And Jesus could see what was going on. Firstly, he notices there's some rich people who are doing what, in the previous example, putting in the big notes, putting in the big, putting in the big bucks. But Jesus doesn't really comment on that. He doesn't seem overly impressed. There is one thing that he thinks, my disciples have got to know about this. That is a widow who places in two coins. Two small coins. I believe they were the smallest coins that they had at the time. They were called a lepta. A lepta was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was known to be the average daily wage. So she did two of those, so she did one thirty-second of that, for those who like their fraction. And the curious part of me, I got online and thought, what's today's average daily wage? Apparently it's $360. But I don't know where they figured it out, but that's the Bureau of Statistics, that's what it said. So doing the calculations on all that, she put in $11.25 by today's money. Or if you like a good visual picture, that's halfway between a small Big Mac meal and a medium Big Mac meal. And there were probably some who saw that lady put those two little coins in there and in their head, or maybe even out loud, they were probably a bit more, they didn't care about offending people so much then. They probably said, cheapskate, or however you say that in Aramaic. But what was considered so insignificant in the eyes of some, Jesus was so impressed that he had to gather his disciples together and say, have a look at this. Like he even emphasised how important it is. Truly, truly, I say to you. This poor widow has put in more than all of those who were contributing in the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. She didn't have a status that demanded a great deal of respect. She didn't and couldn't offer anywhere near the amount that the others who had done beforehand. But she gave her all. She loved God from all that she had. We're all called to love God from all that we have. That doesn't mean the world's supposed to put every single cent we've got in the offering. I'm not going to do that sort of thing. I'm sure someone's done that one before, not in this church. But we are called to give our all. And our all is different. We are different. We've got different gifts. We've got different availability, different financial income, different stages of life. Jesus isn't saying to us, watch everybody around you and do better than them. He says, watch your heart. Love me with all of your heart. Serve me with all of your heart. With whatever I have blessed you with, serve me wholeheartedly with that. The externals will always look different and we shouldn't look down upon people's externals. 
God looks at the heart, nor should we feel like we're not giving or doing enough if we are giving our all within the capacity that we have. We shouldn't seek the approval of mankind, we should seek the approval of God. I said from the start, these are very familiar verses. A very familiar phrase, love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. I'm not going to ask who can recite it from memory, but I imagine most of you can. But as we think about it, and the mirror gets held up, we ask the question, do I love God with every faculty that I have in all of its entirety? Maybe as we have some time of quiet, reflective prayer before we gather around the Lord's table shortly, maybe there's some things you might want to bring before the Lord in prayer. We will pray corporately for us in a moment. Or maybe you're thinking, I really want to. No, genuinely, I really do. But it's too hard or I just can't. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the scriptures that calls you to these things is the same one who lives within you. Is the same one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God wants to change his people. He has given you everything you need to love him, to serve him, for life and for godliness. And to steal a point from Keith's sermon last week and his wording, what you look at, your life will follow you. Where your focus and where your heart is, your life will fall into line with that. He's given us his word to reveal himself, that we might know him, that we might love him with our wholeness of our heart. He's available 24-7 in prayer that we might converse with him, we might seek him, we might ask him, we might bring things before him in prayer. Want to know why Sarah can't tell you about Essendon? Because she quite rightly concludes it's not worth her time. But the creator of this world who has given you everything that you see around you, every blessing that you have got and who did not spare but gave his one and only son to set us free from the punishment that we deserve and restore us into a relationship with him, to be reconciled with him, to be with him for all eternity, he is worthy of our time. Sure, we'll never love him as much as he has loved us. We just don't have the capacity to do it as perfectly as he does. But we are called to love him with all that we have. We should ask that what God asks us to do is say, God, help me to do that. I want to be all in in every single possible way. I get challenged every time when I'm reading through James and you see those words, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you ask and you ask for your own selfish reasons. I often wonder how much things we don't have, how much growth we don't experience because we simply just don't ask. Or in this context, to ask for selfish reasons because they God, transform every part of me that I might be wholehearted for you so that others might think highly of me. That would be why it's not granted for selfish reasons. 
God reveals himself in the scriptures as a God who wants to answer prayers that are according to his will. This is his will. He says, this is the, the central heart of what I'm about. Love me with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. He wants this. So as we close, I'm going to pray for myself and I'm going to pray for all of us that he might do that work within us. Heavenly Father, it's astounding that we know these words so well. Yet when we're honest, we find they don't describe us very well at all. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you're not asking us to to strain our faculties to do something by our own strength. But God, we need you to change us. We give you thanks that your spirit dwells within us. Transform our hearts that our greatest and deepest and central love that drives everything we do and think might be for you. The one who created us, the one who has saved us and drawn us to himself. Renew and transform our minds. Lead us to your word daily that we might feed on you and have our minds transformed, that we might behold the wonders of who you are. Help us to use every faculty we have, our strength, our abilities, and all that we have to be a natural overflow of a love for you that is all in. Work in me, work in us. But Lord, may we put ourselves in a position where you can work in us, that we might commit to the things that you have given us, that we might know you and behold your beauty. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.